Section 58 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Golding. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. By David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 58, Chapter 61. Part five. Cromwell began to hope that by his administration, attended with so much lustre and success abroad, so much order and tranquillity at home, he had now acquired such authority as would enable him to meet the representatives of the nation, and would assure him of their dutiful compliance with his government. He summoned a parliament, but not trusting altogether to the good will of the people, he used every art which his new model of representation allowed him to employ, in order to influence the elections, and fill the house with his own creatures. Ireland, being entirely in the hands of the army, chose few, but such officers as were most acceptable to him. Scotland showed a like compliance, and as the nobility and gentry of that kingdom regarded their attendance on English parliaments as an ignominious badge of slavery, it was on that accord more easy for the officers to prevail in the elections. Notwithstanding all these precautions, the protector still found that the majority would not be favorable to him. He set guards therefore on the door, who permitted none to enter but such as produced a warrant from his council, and the council rejected about a hundred, who either refused a recognition of the protector's government, or on other accounts obnoxious to him. These protested against so egregious a violence, subversive of all liberty, but every application for redress was neglected both by the council and the parliament. The majority of the Parliament, by means of these arts and violences, was now at last either friendly to the Protector, or resolved, by their compliance, to adjust, if possible, this military government to their laws and liberties. They voted a renunciation of all title in Charles Stuart, or any of his family, and this was the first act, dignified with the appearance of national consent, which had ever had that tendency. Colonel Jeffson, in order to sound the inclinations of the House, ventured to move that the Parliament should bestow the crown on Cromwell, and no surprise or reluctance was discovered on the occasion. When Cromwell afterwards asked Jeffson what induced him to make such a motion, As long, said Jeffson, as I have the honour to sit in Parliament, I must follow the dictates of my own conscience, whatever offence I may be so unfortunate as to give you. Get thee gone, said Cromwell, giving him a gentle blow on the shoulder. Get thee gone, for a mad fellow as thou art. In order to pave the way to this advancement, for which he so ardently longed, Cromwell resolved to sacrifice his major generals, whom he knew to be extremely odious to the nation. That measure was also become necessary for his own security. All government, purely military, fluctuates perpetually between a despotic monarchy and a despotic aristocracy, according as the authority of the chief commander prevails, or that of the officers next him in rank and dignity. The major generals, being possessed of so much distinct jurisdiction, began to establish a separate title to power, and had rendered themselves formidable to the protector himself, and for this inconvenience, though he had not foreseen it, he well knew, before it was too late, to provide a proper remedy. Claypole, his son-in-law, who possessed his confidence, abandoned them to the pleasure of the house, and though the name was still retained, it was agreed to abridge, or rather entirely annihilate, the power of the major-generals. At length a motion in form was made by Alderman Pack, one of the city members, for investing the protector with the dignity of king. 
This motion at first excited great disorder, and divided the whole house into parties. The chief opposition came from the usual adherents of the protector, the major generals, and such officers as depended on them. Lambert, a man of deep intrigue and of great interest in the army, had long entertained the ambition of succeeding Cromwell in the protectorship, and he foresaw that if the monarchy were restored, hereditary right would also be established, and the crown be transmitted to the posterity of the prince first elected. He pleaded, therefore, conscience, and rousing all those civil and religious jealousies against kingly government, which had been so industriously encouraged among the soldiers, and which served them as a pretense for so many violences, he raised a numerous and still more formidable party against the motion. On the other hand, the motion was supported by every one who was more particularly devoted to the protector, and who hoped, by so acceptable a measure, to pay court to the prevailing authority. Many persons also, attached to their country, despaired of ever being able to subvert the present illegal establishment, and were desirous, by fixing it on ancient foundations, to induce the protector from views of his own safety, to pay a regard to the ancient laws and liberties of the kingdom. Even the royalists imprudently joined in the measure, and hoped that, when the question regarded only persons, not forms of government, no one would any longer balance between the ancient royal family and an ignoble usurper who, by blood, treason, and perfidy, had made his way to the throne. The bill was voted by a considerable majority, and a committee was appointed to reason with the protector, and to overcome those scruples which he pretended against accepting so liberal an offer. The conference lasted for several days. The committee urged that all the statutes and customs of England were founded on the supposition of regal authority, and could not, without extreme violence, be adjusted to any other form of government that a protector, except during the minority of a king, was a name utterly unknown to the laws, and no man was acquainted with the extent or limits of his authority, that, if it were attempted to define every part of his jurisdiction, many years, if not ages, would be required for the execution of so complicated a work. If the whole power of the king were at once transferred to him, the question was plainly about a name, and the preference was indisputably due to the ancient title that the English constitution was more anxious concerning the form of government than concerning the birthright of the first magistrate, and had provided, by an express law of Henry the Seventh, for the security of those who act in defence of the king in being, by whatever means he might have acquired possession, that it was extremely the interest of all his highness's friends to seek the shelter of this statute, and even the people in general were desirous of such a settlement and in all juries were with great difficulty induced to give their verdict in favour of a protector that the great source of all the late commotions had been the jealousy of liberty and that a republic together with a protector had been established in order to provide further securities for the freedom of the constitution but that by experience the remedy had been found insufficient even dangerous and pernicious since every indeterminate power such as that of a protector must be arbitrary and the more arbitrary as it was contrary to the genius and inclination of the people the difficulty consisted not in persuading cromwell he was sufficiently convinced of the solidity of these reasons and his inclination as well as judgment was entirely on the side of the committee but how to bring over the soldiers to the same way of thinking was the question the office of the king had been painted to them in such horrible colours that there were no hopes of reconciling them suddenly to it, even though bestowed upon their general, to whom they were so much devoted. 
A contradiction, open and direct, to all past professions, would make them pass, in the eyes of the whole nation, for the most shameless hypocrites, enlisted, by no other than mercenary motives, in the cause of the most perfidious traitor. Principles, such as they were, had been encouraged in them by every consideration, human and divine, and though it was easy, where interest concurred, to deceive them by the thinnest disguises, it might be found dangerous at once to pull off the mask and to show them, in a full light, the whole crime and deformity of their conduct. Suspended between these fears and his own most ardent desires, Cromwell protracted the time, and seemed still to oppose the reasonings of the committee, in hopes that by artifice he might be able to reconcile the refractory minds of the soldiers to his new dignity. While the protector argued so much in contradiction both to his judgment and inclination, it is no wonder that his elocution, always confused, embarrassed, and unintelligible, should be involved in tenfold darkness, and discover no glimmering of common sense or reason. An exact account of this conference remains, and may be regarded as a great curiosity. The members of the committee, in their reasonings, discover judgment, knowledge, elocution. Lord Brockhill, in particular, exerts himself on this memorable occasion. But what a contrast when we pass to the protector's replies! After so singular a manner does nature distribute her talents, that in a nation abounding with sense and learning, a man who, by superior personal merit alone, had made his way to supreme dignity, and had even obliged the Parliament to make him a tender of the crown, was yet incapable of expressing himself on this occasion, but in a manner which a peasant of the most ordinary capacity would justly be ashamed of. The opposition which Cromwell dreaded was not that which came from Lambert and his adherents, whom he now regarded as capital enemies, and whom he was resolved on the first occasion to deprive of all power and authority. It was that which he met with in his own family, and from men who, by interest as well as inclination, were the most devoted to him. Fleetwood had married his daughter, Desborough his sister, yet these men, actuated by principle alone, could by no persuasion, artifice, or entreaty, be induced to consent that their friend and patron should be invested with regal dignity. They told him that if he accepted of the crown, they would instantly throw up their commissions, and never afterwards should have it in their power to serve him. Colonel Pride procured a petition against the office of king, signed by a majority of the officers who were in London and the neighbourhood. Several persons, it is said, had entered into an engagement to murder the protector within a few hours after he should have accepted the offer of the Parliament. Some sudden mutiny in the army was justly dreaded, and upon the whole Cromwell, after the agony and perplexity of long doubt, was at last obliged to refuse the, that crown which the representatives of the nation, in the most solemn manner, had tendered to him. Most historians are inclined to blame his choice but he must be allowed the best judge of his own situation, and in such complicated subjects the alteration of a very minute circumstance, unknown to the spectator, will often be sufficient to cast the balance and render a determination, which in itself may be uneligible, very prudent, or even absolutely necessary to the actor. A dream or prophecy, Lord Clarendon mentions, which he affirms, and he must have known the truth, was universally talked of almost from the beginning of the civil wars, and long before Cromwell was so considerable a person as to bestow upon it any degree of probability. In this prophecy it was foretold that Cromwell should be the greatest man in England, and would nearly, but never would fully, mount the throne. 
Such a preposition probably arose from the heated imagination either of himself or of his followers, and as it might be one cause of the great progress which he had already made, it is not an unlikely reason which may be assigned for his refusing at this time any further elevation. The Parliament, when the regal dignity was rejected by Cromwell, found themselves obliged to retain the name of a commonwealth and protector. And, as the government was hitherto a manifest usurpation, it was thought proper to sanctify it by a seeming choice of the people and their representatives. Instead of the instrument of government, which was the work of the general officers alone, an humble petition and advice was framed, and offered to the protector by the Parliament. This was represented as the great basis of the Republican establishment, regulating and limiting the powers of each member of the Constitution, and securing the liberty of the people to the most remote posterity. By this deed, the authority of protector was in some particulars enlarged. In others, it was considerably diminished. He had the power of nominating his successor. He had a perpetual revenue assigned him a million a year for the pay of the fleet and army, three hundred thousand pounds for the support of civil government, and he had authority to name another house, who should enjoy their seats during life, and exercise some functions of the former house of peers. But he abandoned the power, assumed in the intervals of Parliament, of framing laws with the consent of its council, and he agreed that no members of either house should be excluded but by the consent of that house of which they were members. The other articles were in the main the same as in the instrument of government. The instrument of government Cromwell had formerly extolled as the most perfect work of human invention. He now represented it as a rotten plank upon which no man could trust himself without sinking. Even the humble petition and advice, which he extolled in its turn, appeared so lame and imperfect that it was found requisite, this very session, to mend it by a supplement and after all it may be regarded as a crude and undigested model of government. It was, however, accepted for the voluntary deed of the whole people in the three united nations, and Cromwell, as if his power had just commenced from this popular consent, was anew inaugurated in Westminster Hall, after the most solemn and most pompous manner. The Parliament having adjourned itself, the Protector deprived Lambert of all his commissions, but still allowed him a considerable pension of two thousand pounds a year, as a bribe for his future peaceable deportment. Lambert's authority in the army, to the surprise of everybody, was found immediately to expire with the loss of his commission. Packet and some other officers, whom Cromwell suspected, were also displaced. Richard, eldest son of the Protector, was brought to court, introduced into public business, and thenceforth regarded by many as his heir in the Protectorship. Though Cromwell sometimes employed the gross artifice of flattering others with hopes of the succession. Richard was a person possessed of the most peaceable, inoffensive, unambitious character, and had hitherto lived contentedly in the country, on a small estate which his wife had brought him. All the activity which he discovered, and which never was great, was, however, exerted to beneficent purposes. At the time of the king's trial he had fallen on his knees before his father, and had conjured him, by every tie of duty and humanity, to spare the life of that monarch. Cromwell had two daughters unmarried. One of them he now gave in marriage to the grandson and heir of his great friend, the Earl of Warwick, with whom he had, in every fortune, preserved an uninterrupted intimacy and good correspondence. The other he married to the Viscount Falkenberg, of a family formerly devoted to the royal party. He was ambitious of forming connections with the nobility, and it was one chief motive for his desiring the title of king, that he might replace every thing in its natural order. 
and restore to the ancient families the trust and honor of which he now found himself obliged, for his own safety, to deprive them. The Parliament was again assembled, consisting, as in the times of monarchy, of two houses, the Commons and the other house. Cromwell, during the interval, had sent writs to his House of Peers, which consisted of sixty members. They were composed of five or six ancient peers, of several gentlemen of fortune and distinction, and of some officers who had risen from the meanest station. None of the ancient peers, however, though summoned by writ, would deign to accept of a seat which they must share with such companions as were assigned them. The protector endeavoured at first to maintain the appearance of a legal magistrate. He placed no guard at the door of either house, but soon found out how incompatible liberty is with military usurpations. By bringing so great a number of his friends and adherents into the other house, he had lost the majority among the national representatives. In consequence of a clause in the humble petition and advice, the Commons assumed a power of readmitting those members whom the Council had formerly excluded. Sir Arthur Hazelrig and some others, whom Cromwell had created lords, rather chose to take their seat with the Commons. An incontestable majority now declared themselves against the Protector, and they refused to acknowledge the jurisdiction of that other house which he had established. Even the validity of the humble petition and advice was questioned, as being voted by a Parliament which lay under force, and which was deprived by military violence of a considerable number of its members. The Protector, dreading combinations between the Parliament and the malcontents in the army, resolved to allow no leisure for forming any conspiracy against him, and with expressions of great displeasure he dissolved the Parliament. When urged by Fleetwood and others of his friends not to precipitate himself into this rash measure, he swore by the living God that they should not sit a moment longer. These distractions at home were not able to take off the Protector's attention from foreign affairs, and in all his measures he proceeded with the same vigour and enterprise, as if secure of the duty and attachment of the three kingdoms. His alliance with Sweden he still supported, and he endeavoured to assist that crown in its successful enterprises for reducing all its neighbours to subjection, and rendering itself absolute master of the Baltic. As soon as Spain declared war against him, he concluded a peace and an alliance with France, and united himself in all his counsels with that potent and ambitious kingdom. Spain, having long courted in vain the friendship of the successful usurper, was reduced at last to apply to the unfortunate prince. Charles formed a league with Philip, removed his small court to Bruges in the Low Countries, and raised four regiments of his own subjects, whom he employed in the Spanish service. The Duke of York, who had with applause served some campaigns in the French army, and who had merited the particular esteem of Marshal Turenne, now joined his brother, and continued to seek military experience under Don John of Austria and the Prince of Condé. The scheme of foreign politics adopted by the Protector was highly imprudent, but was suitable to that magnanimity and enterprise with which he was so signally endowed. He was particularly desirous of conquest and dominion on the continent, and he sent over into Flanders six thousand men under Reynolds, who joined the French army commanded by Turenne. In the former campaign, Mardyke was taken, and put into the hands of the English. Early this campaign, siege was laid to Dunkirk, and when the Spanish army advanced to relieve it, the combined armies of France and England marched out of their trenches and fought the Battle of the Dunes, where the Spaniards were totally defeated. The valour of the English was much remarked on this occasion. Dunkirk, being soon after surrendered, was by agreement delivered to Cromwell. 
he committed the government of that important place to Lockhart, a Scotsman of abilities, who had married his niece, and was his ambassador at the court of France. This acquisition was regarded by the protector as the means only of obtaining further advantages. He was resolved to concert measures with the French court for the final conquest and partition of the Low Countries. Had he lived much longer and maintained his authority in England, so chimerical or rather so dangerous a project would certainly have been carried into execution. And this first and principal step towards more extensive conquest, which France during a whole century has never yet been able, by an infinite expense of blood and treasure, fully to attain, had at once been accomplished by the enterprising, though unskilful politics of Cromwell. End of section 58 Chapter 61, Part 5. Recording by Greg Golding, Georgetown, Ontario, Canada.